we have a very clear vision. I believe that it is our time as a church. God has been preparing us for this moment as a church. You know, when I hear those words and those phrases that the pastor in the video just said, he's not the pastor that I picture in my mind. He's a pastor in Syria, war-torn Syria, where Christians are being persecuted. But in my mind, if I separate those phrases and those words from the video that we just watched, what I imagine in my mind is the pastor of a mega church who's standing on a huge stage with all the latest technology, and he's speaking to thousands of people. And their church is experiencing explosive growth, and there are some great things happening. And they're trying to figure out how to maintain that growth, how to maintain that momentum. And because of all the great things that are happening, he's saying, we have a clear vision. This is our time. This is our day. God has prepared us for this moment. But that's not who's speaking in this video. It's a pastor in war-torn Syria who is choosing to stay and literally risk his life every single day for the sake of the gospel. And why would he do that? Why would he choose to stay whenever, when others choose to run? Well, he said it in his own words. He said, we have the most powerful message in the world, the message of Jesus Christ, and it can change lives. That's why he stayed. And he went on to say that the privilege isn't in leaving, the privilege is in staying in their country for such a time as this. And he went on to say that lots of people are coming to accept Christ, are coming to a relationship with Christ. And those people are saying, we've lost everything. We've lost our homes, we've lost our possessions, but we've gained Christ. And the Bible says something like that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And the Christians in Syria, they truly, truly believe that. And they're truly living out the two greatest commandments as well, in a real way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, I'd say they're doing that. They're risking their lives literally every day for Jesus, for their faith in Jesus. I would say that's heart, mind, soul, and strength. And also they're, they're loving their neighbors as themselves. That's why they've stayed. That's why they're so committed to their faith because they love their neighbors who do not yet know Jesus and they want to see them come uh, to a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's their mission and that's their vision. And so when I was watching this video this week along with others, uh, it made me feel several different things as I was watching these videos. The first thing, I was in awe. I was in awe of the faith of the Christians in Syria. If you're like me and you've lived in the United States your entire life, it's hard, it's hard to understand that type of danger. It's hard to understand that type of pers- persecution and the level of faith that it would take to, to remain laser-focused on the vision and mission of spreading the gospel. We just can't quite understand that. The second thing that it made me do is it made me wrestle with my own faith a little bit. If my life completely changed, if tomorrow my life flipped upside down, and now all of a sudden from my faith I'm being persecuted and I'm suffering because I believe in Jesus, would I be that strong or would I turn and run? And so I wrestled with that as I was watching these videos and preparing for this morning. I know what I would want my answer to be. I pray that I would react the way that I want to. But then the other question is, should we, should we have to be in a situation like that? Should we have to be in, pers- in persecution before we know whether or not our faith is that strong? Or should we just already be there? 
And so that's what I wrestled with as I was preparing for this morning. But we live in America. We live in the United States. And things are a little different here right now. We have a lot of freedoms that people in other countries don't have. But persecution of the church, it is a real thing. It's a real issue. It's not just something that happened in the first century. It's not just something that happened a few hundred years ago. It's happening now, and it's happening in countries across the world, and it's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this morning is about raising awareness and understanding that that's happening around the world. And the second thing that we want to do this morning is we want to take a look at God's word and see what it has to say about this, this issue of suffering as a Christian. And thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about it. It's not silent. Because we may be asking, is this supposed to happen? Will this continue to happen? How should we feel about Christian suffering? How should we react when it comes to Christian suffering? And I think we'll have some good, solid answers to that before we leave here this morning. But uh, I mentioned earlier in the service about our, our bulletin insert card. If you would, just go ahead and pull that out for, for just a minute. We're going to look at some of these things on here. These statistics uh, we got from Open Doors. Open Doors is an organization um, that, that their sole purpose is to provide support for Christians who are being persecuted and suffering all around the world. So you can find these statistics on, on their website. And all these numbers are given as a monthly statistic, so each month these things happen. The first one, every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Every month. Not every year, not every couple years, every month, 322 Christians lose their life because of their faith in Jesus. Every month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. Now, obviously, a building is not as important as a human life, but when it comes to, to ministry, that, that can be devastating to a church. Think about, think about our church, this big, beautiful church building that we meet in every Sunday. Just yesterday, yesterday morning, we had a men's ministry breakfast here. We had Upward Basketball, which is one of our largest outreaches to our community, happening all day. And then later in the evening, we had a daddy-daughter event here at the church. If this next week, this building was just gone, if it was burnt to the ground, that would have a devastating effect on our ministry here in Erie. The third one, every month, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. Things such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages. This is what's happening around the world in the church, and this is the type of persecution that the church is facing. But like I said earlier, the Bible isn't silent on the issue, so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and take them out. And you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend a majority of our time this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. And before we dive in reading in chapter 4, I just want to give you a little background information. This is the, uh, this is the first letter that Peter wrote. And he wrote it to a group of scattered Christians in Rome. And there's a reason that they were scattered and not all together. Because at that time, the emperor, the ruler of Rome, his name was Nero. And Nero, we know, uh, according to history, uh, was a violent man extremely violent man. A lot of people believe that he actually murdered his way to the throne. He lived a wild lifestyle. He loved extravagance. He wanted to have more and more things, bigger things, better things. He lived a life of extravagance. And at this time period, the city of Rome had actually been tor torched, and a lot of it had uh, burned to the ground. And a lot of people believe that Nero, the emperor, was actually the one who torched his own city. 
And the reason he did that is because he was so obsessed with extravagance that being the ruler and emperor over the, the most powerful nation in the world at that time wasn't enough for him. Being the ruler over the, the biggest and largest city, the most beautiful city at that time wasn't enough. So he torched his own city so that he could rebuild it and make it bigger and better and even more extravagant. And so the people of Rome, they started to think that, that maybe Nero was the one that had lit the city on fire. They'd lost their homes, their possessions, and so they started to question Nero. And so he realized that his people were, were starting to turn on him. And so he decided that he needed to push the blame on someone else. He needed a scapegoat. And so he decided that the Christians would be the perfect people to blame for uh, Rome burning to the ground. And this wouldn't be that far of a leap because the, the Romans, they, are, they already disliked the Jews. They already persecuted the Jews because of the connection between the Jews and Christians. It wasn't that far of a leap um, for, for them to believe that this would happen or for them to, to dislike the Christians. And so Nero spread this throughout the Roman Empire. And then throughout Rome, persecution broke out against the Christians. And so that's what's happening at this period of time as Peter is writing this letter. So let's begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now anytime we're reading scripture, and anytime we're reading God's word, and we see the word therefore, it's really important, important. And, we, and we need to stop and pause for a second because before we can understand what's said or what's happened after therefore, we have to understand what happened before it. The context is really important. And earlier in chapter 3 of, of 1 Peter, Peter's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter is saying that Jesus himself had to suffer in the flesh. That when he was on earth, he suffered. Therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we are supposed to, to change our thinking. He's challenging us to, to change our mindset. And he uses that phrase, arm yourselves which kind of sounds like a, a, maybe a military term or like there's going to be a battle. But he's not talking about a physical battle. He's talking about a battle inside of our minds, that we need to change the way of thinking so that we think like Jesus did. Jesus was willing to give up his life for us. He was willing to suffer in the flesh for us. And Peter is saying we need to be the same way. We need to be willing to suffer for others like Jesus suffered for us. And then he goes on to say, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So he's saying if we're able to accomplish this, if we're able to change our mindset and begin thinking like Jesus, then we are no longer slaves to our sin. And we are no longer living for worldly passions, but instead we're living for the will of God in our lives. And so that's what Peter's challenging us to. Let's continue reading in verse 7. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So in verse 8, Peter says, Keep loving one another earnestly. 
In the King James Version, it talks about fervent love. And when we define that out from the original language, fervent love means love without ceasing. And what we're talking about here, we're not talking about how we love our spouse or how we love our children or our parents or grandparents or anyone else in our family. This letter is a letter to Christians. It's a letter to the church. So what Peter is talking about is how we should love each other, how we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we should love them without ceasing. Because that type of love covers a multitude of sins. When people mess up, when they fall, when they hurt us, when they sin against us, if we're operating under a love that never ceases, then it covers over those things and we're able to forgive and we're able to move on. He also says that we should show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so love, love isn't just an emotional thing. It isn't just something that we feel. It is an emotion and we do feel it. But this kind of love that we're talking about, love without ceasing, it's a love that's practical. It's a love that we can put into action. It's a love that, that we do something. And Peter's saying that we should be hospitable to one another. And then finally, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. We've each been given a gift. We've each been given a spiritual gift. And we're to use that to serve each other. It's not for the sake of elevating ourselves so that we can boast in ourselves. It's to serve the church, to serve one another. Peter talks about being a steward of God's gift. Being a steward just simply means that we're a manager of what belongs to someone else. The gifts that we've been given, they belong to God. He has just given them to us to manage and to use to serve the church and to serve each other and to serve the body of Christ. And so up to this point in chapter 4 in Peter, he, he's laying out a challenge. He's saying that we need to change our mindset. We need to think differently. We need to think like Jesus did. Also, at the same time, we need to love each other in a deeper way. We need to love each other without ceasing. And he's telling us this because of what he's going to go on to talk about now in, in verse 12. Let's start reading again in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, there's a lot packed into those seven verses, into this passage of scripture. There are many things that we could pull out of these verses, but I want us to focus in on three Three principles that we can look at when it comes to suffering as a Christian. And the first thing that we can learn is that when it comes to suffering, we should expect it. We should expect that it's going to happen. It may not be us. It may not be someone we know. It may be someone in a country around the world. But Christians are going to suffer for their faith. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And I think it's interesting that he uses that phrase, fiery trial. When we define those words out, it tells us that it's a calamity as a test or a trial. 
So what Peter is saying is that, again, Jesus suffered when he was here on the earth. So if we are going to give our lives to him, if we're going to trust our lives to him, there's a chance that whatever path he leads us down, whatever uh, his will is for our lives, it may lead to some difficult circumstances, and we shouldn't be surprised when that happens, because that's what happened in Jesus' life. And then he goes on to say, as, as though something strange were happening to you. This shouldn't be a surprise. It's not something strange. It's not something that's just happening. It's not by chance. It's not without reason. It's something that's happening for a purpose. Just like when Jesus died on the cross. It was with a purpose. It was for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. In the same way, when we suffer, it's not by chance. It's not without reason or without cause. It's to proclaim the name of Jesus. And so we have to remember that, that we should expect that suffering is going to happen. Again, whether it's to us or others in countries around the world, people are going to suffer for their faith in Jesus. The second thing that we can learn is that we should rejoice in it. That one's a little weird, isn't it? Rejoicing in our suffering. That seems like the opposite of, of what we should do. In verse 13, Peter says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now in this verse, Peter is echoing something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, which say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. And so he's echoing Jesus' words to rejoice and be glad. Peter says, when his glory is revealed, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. And so what we know is that people that are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, people who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus, their reward is going to be great in heaven. Jesus understood that his suffering on earth was only temporary. It was only momentary. But the sacrifice that he was making was for eternity. And it was going to save the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. And so when we suffer, it's the same way. We have to see the bigger picture. That is for the sake of the gospel, and it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so this is a reminder of what Peter said earlier in chapter 4, that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. We have to see the bigger picture, just like Jesus did. Verse 14 if you are insult, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul said something really similar to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And in this passage, Paul is having a vision and Jesus is speaking to him about a difficult circumstance he is going to face in life. And the vision he's having, uh, this is what Jesus says to him. But he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had learned to have a level of contentment no matter what situation he was facing in life. No matter how difficult no matter if he was being persecuted, no matter if he was in prison, no matter what it was, he had learned to be content. And it's because he believed this, that God's grace was sufficient for him, that his power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. 
And I think it's interesting that, that both the passage from 1 Peter 4 and 2 Corinthians talk about, in different ways, God resting upon us. Peter says um, that, this, that the glory of God rests upon us, and, and Paul says that the power of Christ may rest upon us. And those words for rest, they're not the same exact word used in both passages, but they're similar, and they mean to take ease, to refresh, or abide with. So why do we rejoice in persecution? Why would we do that? Because in our most difficult circumstances, the glory of God and the power of Christ rests upon us. And in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. There's a story of a man named John Denley. And he lived in England in the 1500s. And he was a Christian. He was a follower of Christ. One day he was walking down the street uh, to visit some friends. And as he was walking, he was stopped by, by the authorities and he was searched. And as he was being searched, they they found his written confession of faith. So he'd actually written out his confession of faith, and he would put it in his pocket and carry it with him wherever he went. Now, Denley believed, as as the Bible taught, in the church that was established by Jesus through his apostles, through his disciples, and that Jesus was the head of the church. But at that time, the Church of England didn't always teach exactly according to Scripture. And they wanted the power and the authority. So the idea of giving that power and authority up to Jesus was not something that they liked. And so because of his faith, he was turned over to the bishop for questioning. But he still wouldn't back down from his statement of faith. He wouldn't deny the fact that he was a follower of Christ. So because of that, he was condemned to die. And just six weeks later, he was sent to be burnt at the stake. And so when the fire was lit, he showed no fear. He had no fear at all. And actually the story goes on to say that he cheerfully sang a psalm as the flames rose around him. So as the fire is lit, as the flames rise, as he begins to feel the heat, as his skin begins to to burn, he decides he's going to worship God in in his most difficult time. And so the the fire begins to burn, and and he is singing, and this makes his accusers and his punishers pretty angry. And so in anger uh, and hoping to silence Denley, one of the guards picks up a piece of wood and throws it at him and hits him in the face. I'll talk about adding insult to injury. This guy has already been arrested, sentenced to die because of his faith in Jesus. He's being burnt at the stake, a horrific way to die, a painful way to die, And now they throw this piece of wood at him and hit him in his face. But the most amazing part of the story is John Denley's response to this. And he responded by saying, Truly, you have spoiled a good old song. Truly, you have spoiled a good old song, a good old song, as he's on fire, as he's being put to death and being hit in the face with pieces of wood. And the story says that he went on to continue singing until he died, until he took his last breath. What an amazing example of faith. But when he was at his weakness, Christ's power was made strong in him. And so we expect that suffering is going to happen. We rejoice when it happens. The third thing that we learn is that we have to trust God with it. We have to trust God with our suffering. Verse 19, it says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's interesting in this last verse of the chapter that Peter decides to refer to God as creator. Because up, up until this point, the name that, that Peter had used for God, it, when we translate it out, is the name Theos, which equals or means one true God. 
That's how he had been referring to God all of chapter 4 up until this point. Actually, 11 times he had referred to God as theos, which is also where we get the word theology. But now in, in verse 19, he's referring to God as our faithful creator, which means author of all things. And as we're reading God's word, when we see the, the names for God, it's really important to understand what each name means because the author is trying to communicate something different by using a different name for God. And I think in this passage, Peter may have uh, switched and, and referred to, to God as creator for a couple of different reasons. One, there's no one better to trust than the one who created everything. There's no one greater, there's no one more powerful than the creator of the universe. Why wouldn't we trust our lives and our souls to him? And two, since he is the creator of all things, by trusting God with our lives, we're just simply giving back to him what he created. We are his creation. He is the one who breathed life into our lungs. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. By trusting God with our lives, we are giving back to him what he created in the first place. We are his. We belong to him. He breathed life into our lungs. And so when it comes to suffering as a Christian, we need to to learn to expect it, to rejoice in it, and then to trust God with it when it happens. But here's the deal. We live in America. We live in the United States. And as of right now, we have the freedom to worship. We don't have to have fear when we come to church to worship on Sunday mornings. We don't face the same things that Christians in other countries around the world are facing. So knowing that, what can we take away from this passage in 1 Peter 4? What does it mean to us since we're not facing those types of trials? We have to understand that, that we're not the only Christians in the world. Those of us in this room today are not the only Christians. And we have to understand that in many, uh, in many countries, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. It's a real issue. It's a real thing that, that's happening. We have to understand it. And for just a second, I want to go back to our bulletin insert cards that we talked about earlier. And one more time, I want us to look at that first statistic that's given. That each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Every single month, 322 Christians. If we assume that it's a 30-day month, and we do the math and we divide that out, we can come to the understanding that on Sunday morning, when we wake up in the morning and have breakfast, get ready, go to church, after church, go to lunch, come home, we can assume that somewhere in the world there is at least one Christian who has been killed for their faith in Jesus. The thing that we do every single Sunday morning without even thinking about it, without any fear, without any worry, we get up, we go to church, we have church, we go home, we don't even think about it. Every single week there's a Christian who loses their life for the same exact reason, because of their faith in Jesus. Does that affect us in any way? Does that, make us, does that make us feel anything? Do we even think about these Christians that are suffering? And how should we feel about it? Well, again, the Bible is not silent on the issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, it says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So this verse, it's a, it's a call for mutual love and support throughout the body of Christ. 
These people that, that are suffering, these people that are being persecuted, they're not just a statistic. They're not just a number. They're not just a number that can be found on a website. They are real people with names and faces, and they're putting their lives on the line every single day for the sake of Christ. Does that affect us in any way? See, just like your body reacts when one part is injured or hurt and your brain comprehends what's happening and sends messages to the rest of your body, in the same way the body of Christ should react when someone else, when another part of the body is hurting. We are one church worldwide. We aren't just FAC. We aren't just the churches here in Erie. We are Christ's church, the body of Christ. We have one mission, we have one God, we have one Savior, and we're all proclaiming the same message that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the only way to salvation, and he is the only way to eternity in heaven. And I think when the church operates under a global church mentality, the only option is to be all about the gospel. The only option is to love each other and to love our neighbors like the Christians in Syria are doing. The only option is to put our personal preferences aside and have a bigger view of the church than, than the, the programs and the ministries and the style of music that we think should be happening. Because the church is bigger than that. And quite honestly, the mission of the church is way more important than any of those things. We have to have a global view of the church Sometimes I wonder if, if God looks down on the church in America and just asks, what are you doing? What are you doing? Look at the freedoms that you have. Look at the amazing things that you could do. Look at the impact that you could have for the kingdom. Look at how many people you could reach if you would stop fighting internally. If you would start making Jesus the forefront of all you do. Because that's what we're called to do. But yet in America, church attendance is in decline. Giving financially to the church is in decline. Serving in ministries in the church is in decline. Attending small groups and Bible studies is in, de- in decline. The amount of people that read their Bibles and pray on a daily basis is in decline. When we have the freedoms to not be persecuted, to not suffer for our faith, what could we do? What could we accomplish if we learn to have that global mentality and have the same strong faith that people in, in countries like Syria have? And so this morning, before we close out, we've heard a couple stories of people who have suffered for Christ. And I want us to hear one more. And in this story, uh, this man suffered for Christ as well, but he did it in such a Christ-like way. And so I want us to spend the next few minutes uh, watching this video together.
I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm confident that I've made that decision in my life. I'm confident that I've been forgiven of my sins and received salvation. But I don't always live up to that. I fall into sin. I mess up. I fall short. I lose sight of God's will for my life. I lose sight of the vision and mission of the church to carry the gospel to those who don't know it. And maybe some in the room feel the same way today as well. But the good news for us is that God's always waiting for us. He's always waiting with his arms open wide, just waiting for us to come back to him, to confess our sins, to ask him for forgiveness. And he always takes us back. And maybe there's some in the room today that you've never given your life to Jesus. Today would be a great day to do that. It would be the best decision that you can ever make. There's a couple ways that you can do that. On the tear-off card on your bulletin, you can mark that you're interested in starting a relationship with Jesus. And you can throw that in the offering plate here in just a minute as, as they go by. And someone would love to follow up with you and have that conversation with you. Also, I'm going to stay down front after the service for a few minutes. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. I'd love to answer any questions you may have or, or what you need to do to start taking your next steps towards Jesus. But don't wait. Don't delay. Like I said, it's the best decision that you can ever make in your life. We're going to have our time of offering. This is our time where we give our tithes and offerings, what God has blessed each one of us with. If you're visiting with us today, we don't want you to feel like you, you have to give. We just pray and we hope that you enjoyed your worship experience here with us this morning. That truly is what we hope. And so I'm going to pray for us after I do, and the band is going to lead us in one last song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, your unconditional love for us. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we fail and fall short of you, you forgive us and you take us back. We praise you for that grace and mercy this morning. We thank you that through Jesus, you've made a way for us to salvation. We also thank you for this time of offering that we have, which is just another act of worship in our worship service. Because we know that all we have is from you, so we're just giving back to you a portion of what you've already given us. And we pray that this money would go to further your kingdom, to do amazing things in this community. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.